This season of Well Undone is brought to you by Perennial Plants. Born out of a lifelong love affair with houseplants, Hattie founded Perennial Plants to share this love beyond just her own living room with homes across the country. As someone with an appalling track record of keeping houseplants alive, I can proudly say that, truly living up to their name, my own perennial plants are still thriving over five months in. A true testament to the care with which they were brought into the world. Along with a collection of unique, handcrafted, locally sourced pots, which, might I add, are not available at your usual plant shops, you can view the full houseplant range at www.perennialplants.shop and on Instagram using the handle perennialplantshop. Thank you to perennial plants. Welcome to Well Undone with Lydia Allaby, the podcast where we discuss body image, mental health and everything in between. I'm your host, Lydia Allaby, and each week we will hear from a new interviewee about their personal experience of, quite literally, living in their own skin. Because once we understand that we are not alone in experiencing the damaging impact of wellness and art culture, we can begin to undo it. This week's guest is Ellie Miller. A mid-twenties North London-based lawyer, Ellie and I first met long before we knew what the legal world would have in store for us on day one of our law conversion. I have vivid memories of mid-lecture lunches, students sat in a circle, packed lunches in hand, and as soon as Ellie opened her mouth, being struck by her quiet but confident self-assuredness, wondering how she possibly managed it, when, two years her senior, I felt like I didn't have a clue what I was doing from one minute to the next. Having known Ellie for what is now well over half a decade, that perception remains unchanged, and I leave every conversation with Ellie reminded of what it looks like to live day to day with a gentle but unwavering confidence. So when Ellie said yes to coming on the podcast, I couldn't quite believe my luck. Ellie, welcome to Well Undone. Oh my god, can I put that on my tombstone, Lydia? That was lovely. Of course you can. I'll send you the script. <laughs> that was so nice. Oh. <laughs> it's very disconcerting having things read out about you, isn't it? Yeah. People's honest perceptions of you. Well, I mean, that I, I'm happy to hear that any day of the week. That was lovely. But yeah, it is a bit disconcerting. <laughs> <laughs> and you just have to sit there and not say anything. It's great. I have so much power. Um, so... We might as well just dive straight into it, Ellie. I feel like we've had great chats about this, but no one else has heard them yet. (laughs) So yeah, right back to the beginning, your relationship with your body, take it away. So yeah, when you first mentioned this kind of concept for the podcast, it was really interesting and I was really interested to hear more about it. But my initial gut reaction was, oh, well, I'm fine. I don't have, uh, you know, clinical eating disorder. I don't think this is something that I would want to speak about. And then actually for the course of about a 10 minute conversation, we uncovered sort of a whole life of interesting concepts of food and my body. And in particular, the big thing for me is exercise and how I conceptualize exercise within my entire life and how I use it to give myself value in the world. So it was really interesting kind of just coming at it from that angle and at first thinking that, oh, well, you know, I'm quote unquote normal. And then realizing that actually, to be honest, everyone, particularly women in society, but I think men as well, have a bit of a interesting idiosyncratic relationship with food and with their bodies and with fitness, just because of the way that our society is set up to see those things and the way that society puts so much stock in the aesthetics of everyone's bodies. But just going all the way back to when I was a 
child. So I think sport and exercise has always been a massive part of my life. It's been a massive part of my family. My entire family are obsessed with football. And I'm different out of it now, but I was very into football when I was younger and played football to a <laughs> to varying degrees of success. <laughs> but I was in a few teams. Uh, I used to play netball. I used to do lots of athletics when I was younger. So it's just been a massive part of how I relate with lots of people because I did a lot of team sports and how I, I suppose, how I relate to my own body. I suppose it's all about doing things with your body that you kind of didn't expect yourself to do and running fast and jumping high and all that kind of stuff, all that good stuff. But I think my relationship with fitness and exercise really did change when I became a young adult and when I left home. And I mean, I, it probably started when I was a teenager, as it probably does with a lot of people, but it's consistently getting messages that your body must be small. And at this point in time, this was pre-fitness craze that we'll come on to later, but it was about small bodies. It wasn't about strong or lean bodies. It was about small bodies. And where was that messaging coming from? Because exactly like you say, it's evolved so much. But at that stage in your life, do you recall where that messaging came from? So this is pre-Instagram because I'm a bit old. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want to give my complete age away. But um, this is pre-Instagram. So this is like the actresses you'd see on TV and the adverts you'd see and it was when people were always showing their midriff everywhere and it was like you could just roll a ball down it was just so flat low-rise jeans Britney Spears yeah god that era (laughs) it's so funny how that seems so like far away from now (laughs) not in terms of the aesthetics but just like Britney Spears (laughs) yeah so it was your standard pre-social media stuff it was media in the sort of more general sense that I was getting those messages from and also I think you know insecure teenage girls talking about how they they're not skinny enough that was to an extent something that people talked about but then when I moved so I moved back to the UK when I was 16 and at my sixth form for some reason it was just not a thing that anyone talked about and not a thing that the girls or the boys were that interested in talking about which was quite nice actually and perhaps I was just very lucky with the set of friends that I had at that time it just wasn't a thing that was the focus that's incredibly interesting, actually. So pre-16 at your international school, it was more talked about. For sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I don't know, maybe that's the point in your, when you're like pre-pubescent, when you're like 13, 14, you're probably less comfortable. I mean, everyone has different journeys, right? But you're probably less comfortable with your body at that point because it's changing. Yeah. Whereas you hope by 16, 17, people might be a bit more quote-unquote woke about that kind of stuff which I think was what the case was I think everyone was a bit like oh god it's a bit everyone accepted that you know anorexia was not cool and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. there was the sort of teenage level of political correctness but not in a bad sense because I reject the idea that political correctness is bad but you know what I mean (laughs) (laughs) so yeah and that was nice and I suppose perhaps that obsession with aesthetics was replaced by a different obsession which was I was in an IB group so we I did the international baccalaureate instead of A levels and so the real focus of my friendship group was like we are studying a lot and it was like intellectual prowess over like aesthetic prowess so in a sense that is a bit of a precursor to what comes later which I'll talk about in a minute but 
there was still like as a teenager you still have this thing that you you have aspirations you have goals you have things that you focus on and for me that was just in a different direction um that's not to say that I wasn't self-conscious I was very self-conscious because I was a teenager but there wasn't an obsession in my friendship group about it which was lucky I think yeah and so then I went to uni and carried on with a lot of the sport that I did but I think what really changed for me was moving to London when I came to law school when I met you and then how I related to my body but also how I related to exercise and sport really changed because I kind of left all those team sports that I did so I carried on doing netball I was in the rowing team at uni I left all that behind and exercise became a pretty solitary endeavor and it really felt like exercise became this thing you work on to either shape or sculpt your body into the body that you want or you use to to push your body to a certain point of health and it was very clear as well that my sense of what health was and my sense of how small my body was was the same thing and this is something that I've now realized is a complete farce but you know the way your body looks I really thought was the how healthy you were it was like a a complete transparent window into your like inner health why did you think that well probably because I was told in every <laughs> from every outlet but <laughs> I think <laughs> good answer it's not my fault <laughs> but I mean I think part of that was Instagram and I was following accounts that I thought were like all about health and they were really just like orthorexia eating disorder light kind of it was like counting on macros intense nutritional stuff you know not eating carbs keto diet working out five days a week only doing like high intensity interval training workouts that sort of stuff that was health that was the same thing and that kind of triggered a whole reconceptualization of exercise and sort of my self-worth and I think what was also quite interesting is I had like moved to the big city and I had met a load of new people. I was finding my place in my new set of friends and about 80% of those new friends were all going to the same law firm as I was. And I think I was trying to inhabit the role that I thought I should fulfill as a high-flying lawyer person, moves to London, is now an adult and she trains four times a week and she runs to work with weights in her bag in a way it was kind of like a self-punishment kind of thing it was like a this is hard and I'm doing it because it's hard because it's difficult because I am capable of doing it and I'm going to prove to everyone that I'm capable of doing that I feel that ties in quite closely to what I know we've spoken about before in terms of the achievement side of things do you want to unpack that a bit more yeah so I think there's like the perfectionist element is such a massive part of this I couldn't just casually do some running or you know maybe go to the gym and do a hip workout if I felt like it it was like I had to have a plan and this was also the time when I started running half marathons I would really love to run another one but a part of it was for me it was the achievement it was the goal of it so I had a plan and I had to run four times a week and I was training myself and I had to do it sub two hours and then I did it and I think I my first one was like two hours ten minutes and so then the next one I had to do sub two hours and it was like just pushing myself and 
exercise was no longer about re- recreation. It was another project. It was another bit of work for me to do. And I think it was also the idea of like productivity. This is something that I really unpacked during lockdown is the sense that every single moment of my life has to be productive. And that if you're not doing something productive, then it's not valuable time. So that related and translated into exercise in the sense that I was only doing proper exercise if I was moving my body in a way that was difficult. So if I was going to go for a run, I had to go for a run for longer than, I mean, when it was like most intense, it was like I had to run for like longer than 7K and then for a lot longer of time. If I ran less than 5K, I may as well not have run at all, that kind of thing. Similarly, when I go to the gym, there wasn't much point in me going to the gym and just like just doing one workout. So I had to have a plan and I had to have a set of exercises and that kind of thing. I mean, some people probably would argue that that's just what you need to have. You need to have discipline in order to, you know, get better at the thing that you enjoy doing. But I think at some point I realized that A, I didn't have to do it that way. And B, I wasn't actually enjoying it. And in some cases, I was actually just not going to the gym because I was like, there is no point in me going if I haven't got this plan sorted out. And oh, I don't know if I'm going to have time this week to go to the gym. So what's the point? So in a weird way, I was it was a self-sabotaging kind of strategy. And where do you think that need for productivity comes from or came from? Because I incredibly identify with it. And I think I still struggle to work out where this obsession to sort of achieve and be productive and just work hard comes from, other than that I know, for me, I have some association that that is part of my identity of working really hard and that that is somehow where some of my worth as a person lies, which objectively I can tell you is wrong, but I still struggle with. Where do you think that came from for you? Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there, I think. And I still do this. Like you say, I know that this is not logically true, but I emotionally feel this, that I am only as valuable to myself, to society, to my friends, if I am as productive as possible. It is in a sense about other people, but I think it's also about me. I think I feel like I owe it to myself. And maybe that comes with like the messaging that I think millennials have been taught, which is like, you need to push yourself to be the best. Like you owe it to yourself. Just try the best that you can at everything and you'll know you'll have like done enough kind of thing, which is a nice sentiment, but I think sometimes that can get twisted in. Every single thing you do, you have to do to the best of your ability and you have to push yourself. And I think this is a real millennial problem, but like things that would normally be considered hobbies are now like side hustles or, you know, part-time jobs. For instance, this has nothing to do with fitness, but I've started knitting and I've actually started a knitting Instagram, small plug. I'm not going to, I'm not going to actually plug it because it's undermined the point, but (laughs) I like really felt within my bones that I wanted to like become a knitting influencer. And then I was like, but I'm, I first of all, not very good at like taking the right shot of my knitting. And then I kind of became a bit like of a chore. And so now I have about 20 followers and that's fine. That's okay. You can do that. And I can just enjoy what I'm doing as a hobby. It doesn't have to be this achievement, this goal, this thing that you constantly strive to improve. And I think, well, we can get onto how that mentality changed for me but it it was a lot to do with lockdown and everything my goal for my exercise this year and throughout my life will now be to not have goals 
and to not view it in that performance mindset. I mean, I think I wrote down as my like New Year's resolution was just be a slob <laughs> as much as you can. And if you want to, if you want to do exercise, then that's great. But don't make it a massive endeavor. Don't make it a challenge. And don't tie your self-worth to a particularly stringent type of exercise that might not be that fun. I think that's what I'm looking at now. And how do you think, because that's something I've massively struggled with, and maybe now is a good opportunity to get onto your lockdown reflection experience in that way. Because I think exactly like you said, as millennials, there was very much this aspect of you do just need to work really hard because everything is going to get more competitive and more difficult. And you want a grad scheme, you want a training contract, well, you better be good enough. And I suppose I got to a point probably less than a year ago where I thought, hold on, I'm nearly 30. At what point do I stop working really hard and reap the benefits for having studied my ass off at school (laughs) and worked really hard to get my degree and worked really hard to get a graduate job? Surely, right, we were told that this was all so that we would be happy. (laughs) I'm not happy. Um, (laughs) And when does that switch over happen? And I think, well, I want your views. But for me, I suppose there was an element of, oh, oops, maybe it's a bit of a fast to some extent and you have to get that balance earlier on. But yeah, what are your reflections on that? Yeah, I mean, on the exercise side, I think that this is the thing, right, is that I was pushing myself, doing all this kind of intense exercise, not really enjoying it. And then realizing that I was missing the entire point of the whole thing is that, you know, the whole reason why we're meant to push ourselves and achieve in all aspects of our lives is so that we can have a happy life. And that's what exercise is sold to you as. It's ultimately, I mean, especially now people don't want to say that it's about aesthetics. So they say it's about health. But I think you've said this before, like everyone seems to think of it as physical health and mental health is just not even thought about let alone thought about as a cohesive holistic whole and that was kind of the turning point for me during lockdown when a the performative aspect of exercise is gone because no one was seeing that I was going to the gym or running to work so no one knew apart from me really whether I was doing exercise or not and then I kind of realized that if no one knows about what I'm doing what am I actually doing it for I'm doing it for my own mental health that's got to be the reason why I do exercise and there was a point in time where I was doing that thing that I was telling you before where I wasn't allowing myself to run if I didn't have enough time to run like a 5k or I, if I wasn't going to be able to run because I, obviously I can't run you know seven days a week <laughs> I'll injure myself I wasn't letting myself out of the house because what's the point there's no point going for a walk if you can go for a run right that kind of sense of virtuosity and movement, which is a bit of a pernicious idea. But then at a certain point in time, I realized that if I didn't go outside during lockdown, I was miserable. And so I started doing everyone's favorite, the daily walk. And that was like a bit of a revelation for me is that, oh my God, I can move my body in not the most intense way possible, get a lot out of it, feel great. And I can do it more often than if I'm doing this intense exercise and I can mix it up. And I can also listen to a podcast while I do it. So I can kind of like get a bit more out of it than if I was maybe running full pelt. And that was a bit of an awakening to me. It made me reconceptualize what exercise was. And fundamentally, it's about physical health. Yes, but actually, the reason why I want to do it is because I feel great after I do it. And if you 
lead by the benefits that you get from it in terms of your mental health, then really it doesn't matter whether you do a walk or you do a bit of yoga or you just like do a dance in the kitchen just to get some like stress energy out or you go for a run or you go for a long run. Like it's just a bit of everything. And that's kind of what I do. It's like a pick and mix kind of situation. So now, whereas before I'd have like a tracker that would track whether I'd done exercise three or four times a week. Now it's like my two goals are go outside and move your body. So if I go outside and I walk, that's both of them done. Because I'm, you know, interested in variety, I'll do a mix of everything. And I end up doing maybe two, three runs a week, but I actually don't know how much I do now. I don't really have a track of that. So it's just kind of being more intuitive about it, which has been so useful during lockdown. And I hopefully I can keep it going after this. I think massive hats off to you because I think it's really easy to say, well, now I'm just going for a walk instead of a run. And I think you can listen to that and think, well, that's easy. But I think the mental side of that is actually incredibly hard to acknowledge that just been for a walk and that that is enough. How have you been able to marry that with the superstar Ellie identity? Oh, that's such an interesting one. Yeah, I think I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) Incredibly honest. But that's good. But that's good. Like, I think maybe I need to challenge that idea that I have to be super sorry every day. But I think it's not at all been easy because I do sometimes feel, I think I last went for a run like a week ago and I did wake up this morning like, ooh, laziness, laziness. You're not working hard enough. Go for a run. Changing tack slightly, tell me a bit about your relationship with food and the sort of diet side of things. Again, maybe going back to early years of how you found that relationship with food. Mm, Yeah. So I think, again, this is one more I was like, well, I'm fine, right? I don't think I've got an unhealthy relationship with food. And then literally scratched the tiny veneer of the surface. I was like, oh, wait, no, I do have issues as well. Just like literally everyone. That's just what I do now. I just go around scratching people's veneers, being like, you think you're okay? (laughs) Let me tell you you're not. And everyone has a breakdown over Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It's so great. (sighs) Therapy Lydia. Thank you. Thank you, Therapy Lydia. Yeah, so I mean, I think for me again, it was... Ultimately, what was driving my relationship with food was loving food. I love sweet things. But then that being twinned with a fear of what I thought at the time was a fear of not being very healthy, but it was ultimately a fear of being fat. Because again, there was that conflation between health and size. And that was kind of like a general, I think, the way that people have that messaging throughout their lives about eating five a day and avoiding sugar and you know there's always something in the news that's going to cause cancer and so as a teen I had that in my mind but I I just really love food so I didn't actually restrict myself very much and you know when I lived at home obviously my parents cooked for me and I, I still ate the food and it was healthy but I still had that sense of you know I owe it to society to be healthy aka small and to do that I have to eat the right food my first sort of foray into diet culture and the concept of like really restricting what you eat was when I moved to London again and it was like a combination of like talking to different people and the conversations around dieting like came up quite naturally it was also really spread through Instagram as well and it was like the clean eating craze of (laughs) of like the early 2010s 
and that you know it was really interesting because I started to see every food and kind of was like is this the good food or the bad food because it felt like there was a news item coming up on Instagram obviously not the most reliable news source but there was a news item coming up every week saying that thing that you thought was healthy like a banana actually has carbs in it which are bad and it was like what I thought I understood the rules of food I thought I understood them and now I don't and there was a real sense of like shit I just don't know anything about this and that I think maybe opened me up a little bit more to the (laughs) prying gaze of diet culture and I first started trying to diet and restricting my eating and the main thing that I did was I was preparing for like the summer season and I was going away and we were all trying to get that quote-unquote summer body lol (laughs) and we I think I tried to do keto and this is pre-vegetarianism so it was mainly just like a lot of cheese a lot of meat and I was just really miserable (laughs) but again interestingly I guess it went into that whole idea of I'm perfecting myself I'm achieving I'm doing it like it's another goal that I've gone for and another perfectionist thing so I really stuck to it did that for about mm, I think it was about two months and then nothing changed (laughs) my body did fuck all because I think my body was just at a normal happy healthy weight and I was just hungry all the time hangry because you know I eat nice foods when I feel sad and I couldn't do that and it was a mental burden I was always thinking about eating food and I'm a bit of a grazer as well so I really had to like stop my intuitive eating habits because it just wasn't like conducive to this diet and I've got absolutely nothing out of it and in a way I'm like so so grateful to my body that I did that because I think if I actually had seen any results it would have been really hard for me to you know not pursue dieting in a more like stringent way from then on but what was I just basically like it's gonna be really hard but I'm gonna get a reward from it and I'm gonna achieve something and it was really hard and nothing changed and I failed basically I failed at dieting (laughs) and so I was like this is maybe none of this is true (laughs) and thank god because then I was just a bit like wow and it was really interesting because the people who I was doing it with they did lose loads of weight and so that brought up a bit of shame in the sense of like I'm not doing it right or I'm you know maybe I am eating stuff by accident maybe carbs are somehow crawling into my body in some way that I don't know about (laughs) um and then I was like no I am doing this and nothing's changing so maybe my body is responding in a different way and maybe there isn't a one-size-fits-all and maybe it wasn't healthy for me to go any any smaller so that was a real yeah that was a bit of a wake-up call I suppose and then I think I kind of realized I mean this was probably a year two years later that the people on Instagram that were telling me that bananas were carbs were not making me feel great, feeling like I was not doing well, feeling like I was a failure. And I don't know, I, something came up on my Instagram, which was like, if you're not happy when you're on Instagram, maybe you shouldn't be following those people. So I purged Instagram and started populating it very slowly. This took years, I'd say two years at least, of populating my Instagram with different sized people and people who were talking about really interesting, like anti-racist stuff and feminism and things that were important as opposed to whether banana was a carb or not that kind of thing and specifically following you know fat activists and differently sized people and differently abled people and it really just it's just mad to me how much influence Instagram was having over my life 
to the point that when I changed it, like my whole perspective changed in like the matter of a few years. And I'm so lucky that that happened, but it was pretty scary to the extent that so much influence was coming from this little app that I thought was very innocuous. And what was your experience after you admitted keto defeat? Realised <laughs> that that just was not something fairly. Because I think it can be a real challenge for people, you know, having come from a relationship with food or actually you were pretty intuitive about it and you knew you were a grazer and that's what you'd like to do and that was totally fine. And mm. then you go through this whole process of recalibrating your body and saying yes to this, no to this. Did it take you long to get that intuitive eating side of things back? Yeah, you know, and this is really interesting because it was before I understood intuitive eating as a concept. So I wasn't really like aware. But I think because it was such a crash diet, it was like two months of my life. I hadn't completely like broken those intuitive senses. And I don't remember it being difficult. But that being said, I wasn't like consciously trying to move into an intuitive eating way. I was just kind of like, God, that fucking keto diet. I don't want to do that ever again. Where are the bake tarts? That was kind of... <laughs> That was my mental path. <laughs> <laughs> and something that I really want to unpack a bit more with you, but which is really hard, <laughs> so uh, you may not have all the answers, is where you are now in terms of that fear of getting fat. Because I think, exactly like we discussed before, even for loads of people out there who wouldn't necessarily say, yes, I have a particular problem with food or exercise or whatever it is, I actually think that there is still often this intrinsic fear of getting fat. Where are you with that? Yeah, I think that is the really pernicious issue that I think even people who, maybe like me, who thought I've got a really healthy relationship with food, they still see that as like the big fear and I think the key thing to remember is you don't know anyone your health, right? I mean, I think everyone wants to be healthy, but you don't owe that to society. And so that's the first thing to remember. And secondly, health is so ill-defined right now, and it's inextricably linked to your weight and your external appearance. But that, again, the science bears out that that is not actually the case at all. That being said, it's not a lie that fat people are discriminated against in our society so to be fearful of that is I suppose in a way a logical thing and I do struggle with that as well but I think I have to just accept that I will probably get fatter than I am now in my lifetime probably better to just accept that and to get ready to be you know nourishing and kind to my body when that does happen and also try and remember that like every time you are scared of being fat you are essentially dehumanizing a subset of the population who are that way and obviously I wouldn't be like complaining about getting fat in front of anyone but even I think when your mental conversation has an effect on how you see the world and I think it's just really important to try and remember that it's a political issue and I think it's really important to remember that like the time that one can spend worrying about being fat or being concerned about your body or body checking and that kind of thing if you can actually channel that into something else into you know advocating for fat people or differently able people or learning about the anti-fat bias that exists in society treating that as a you know discrimination issue and trying to help overcome that kind of stigma in society you could just achieve so much more than if you worry about the size of your body and so it's by no means an easy thing because we've been taught from day one that being fat is bad and scary and not good. 
So I'm not saying that I don't ever get that sense. Like I, I put on a bit of weight during lockdown and I, it was a, a thing that I struggled with. But I really just try to remind myself of the political aspect of all of this and remind myself of my privilege and try and use that to, to sort of nudge myself away from that conversation and think of the bigger picture. But it's hard. It's really hard, I think. This is quite a personal question, but where you are now, do you still either weigh yourself or check your body size in other different sorts of ways? So I haven't weighed myself since the great keto failure of 2014. So because <laughs> <laughs> it was just, just, I just hated it. And I mean, I don't think it was like me trying to be, you know, a feminist or body positivity about it. I was just hated the fact that I didn't do very well. So I didn't ever really weigh myself again. <laughs> and I think now that I guess my like actual conceptualization of it has caught up with what I was doing before, but I try not to weigh myself at all now. And I think it's nice to not be like hyper aware of the fluctuations in my body. So I, I think I had to go, go up a gene size this year, but I actually can't really remember, which I think is where I'm trying to get to is not being aware. And I definitely still body check when I'm like looking in the mirror and stuff, but I try not to is, is I guess what I'm, what I'm aiming for. So looping back a bit to the achievement side of things, what would you say to someone who does feel that that is very much part of their identity and thinks, yeah, actually, maybe I don't love exercise or maybe I am doing it more than just for the reason of moving my body, but that is so much part of my identity I can't really get rid of that. Oh, what a question. The thing is, I just don't think there is like a prescriptive, like this is what you need to do to move into intuitive exercise because it defeats the idea of it being intuitive. And I'm not saying that having like a goal, you know, I want to run a half marathon or I want to lift more weights at the gym is in itself a bad thing. But I think I would say to that person, just try being a slob for a bit just try not pushing yourself and see how that feels and see if you know going for a walk instead of a run that might make you less happy and then you know that you're fine and you're probably doing the right thing if you like go for that walk and you're like oh my god actually I have noticed this tree that I'd never seen before because I'm always running really fast or also the other thing we haven't really talked about is try running not listening to really intense music but try running with no music or on a podcast so that you run a bit slower and see how that feels but I think you have to just try it out just like you've tried working really hard and running every day or being great just try really hard at being a slob and see how that feels and maybe you'll have this revelation that I did earlier in the year and I know we touched on this a bit before For me, I still find that balance with competitive side of sports, so like entering races or competitions. For me, at the moment, I just can't manage that alongside working really hard at intuitive exercise and learning to listen to my body. And something I find really hard is that I know that some people genuinely really enjoy doing those competitions. And for them, it isn't all about this 
weight loss or, you know, obsessive exercise side of things. And yet I still find that really hard to compute, to be honest. I can't necessarily understand how people do that and at the same time really listen to their body. I know you mentioned that you've really reflected on the last year in terms of doing things at less achievement-oriented way. But do you think you could be in a place again where you would be re-entering half marathons and you could do that from an intuitive exercise standpoint? Yeah, I think it would have to be... I, I would actually really love to do one again because I felt really great doing it. And it was, again, it's the achievement thing. But I, I think I would have to do it and not have a 12-week plan rather than having something prescribed to me like today you will run 12 kilometers I would try and like just build it up gradually (sighs) yeah I I think I would just have to do it and see if I was becoming obsessed with it again I suppose but I would like to I mean I had actually signed up for a 10k before all of this this plague business happened so (laughs) I am technically signed up for one whenever that was rescheduled for but that's a 10k so I was just gonna like run as I normally do and just do it and see how that goes but um yeah competitiveness is a difficult one in sport and I'm just reminded of the fact that when I was at uni this is how things have changed for me so much is when I was at uni I was in the rowing team and I was a terrible rower so they basically asked me to be a cox which just involves me like sitting at the back of the boat steering and shouting at people over a microphone so zero physical exertion happening apart from I had to wake up at like I think it was like six in the morning something ridiculous but I loved it and I did it for two years at uni and it was still like a form of exercise in the sense that it was really great for my mental health because I was getting so much out of it that wasn't physical I was like in a team I got to shout at people a lot I got to boss them around. I got to like do some steering. I think the really big thing for me is trying to expand that conception of the benefits of exercise into something that's just beyond physical. So, you know, you can be part of a team, you can do something fun, you can learn a new skill. And if that for you is running a half marathon for the first time or like doing it consistently, if that is what makes you happy, then that is absolutely fine. It's just for me, it was really having to pull back from that and avoiding the sense that I had to be a high performer at something I couldn't just enjoy it that's a great answer (laughs) (laughs) Ellie thank you so much for coming on the podcast in particular because like we said at the beginning I think as hard as it is to talk about the eating disorder side of things when you've been through that whole mental process I think It feels like there's quite a lot to talk about. And I just so appreciate you having, I guess, the humility to be like, yes, I haven't had this diagnosed X issue, but I can acknowledge that there are all these other things going on in the world, which is really the whole point of the podcast. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate just your willingness to, yeah, scratch the veneer. (laughs) Thank you. Talk about the great keto failure. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you for having me on. This was really interesting. And can't wait to hear the rest of the podcast if you enjoyed this episode i would so appreciate it if you could rate review and subscribe wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts so that other people just like us can hear about the conversations we're having 
Thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to this season's sponsor, Perennial Plants. A reminder that you can view the full, beautiful houseplant and plant pot range at www.perennialplants.shop and on Instagram using the handle perennialplantsshop.com.